0: Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of JP Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is on the Outlook for 2024. I'm David Lebowitz, global strategist, multi-asset solutions, and host of the Center for Investment Excellence. With me today is Arjun Menon, also a global strategist in our multi-asset solutions business for J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Arjun, thanks for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me. Great to be here.
0: Well, I'm excited to have the uh, I'm excited to have this conversation. Obviously, 2023 uh, didn't shake out quite the way people had expected. Uh, much better than expected, particularly from a, a risk asset perspective. A lot of questions about 2024. People seem to be embracing the idea of. Goldilocks or perhaps a, a soft landing. People are very bullish on risk assets. You've seen relative stability in interest rates, although things have backed up here over the past couple of days. And so, what I'm particularly excited about doing today is unpacking not only the macroeconomic outlook and the interest rate outlook, but then bringing you into the conversation to talk a little bit about what we're seeing across global equity markets in particular. And what I would say about our, our outlook <clears throat> for 2024 is, you know, it, it's it's relatively constructive. We we don't necessarily find ourselves in the Goldilocks camp. We think that getting inflation back down to 2% with above-trend growth is, is, frankly, going to be quite difficult. And if we do see that, I'm not sure uh, that the Federal Reserve will ease the way that, that markets are currently pricing. But we very do much see a soft landing as being in the cards, and to us, what a soft landing is is a continued deceleration in the overall pace of inflation and a move in economic growth to somewhere around, if not below, trend, and that should allow these disinflationary forces that we've seen over the course of the past 12 months continue to play out, eventually giving the Federal Reserve some room uh, to ease policy. When we think about the rest of the world, The, the outlook, unfortunately, is not quite constructive, but we are looking for a handful of things which would lead us to become more constructive. Um, really, when it comes to, to Europe and the emerging markets, we're looking for a turn in the goods cycle, in the manufacturing cycle. If we begin to see that, we will become more constructive on the outlook for growth in in those parts of the world. I'd say the one caveat there is is around China, where, frankly, you know, Chinese equity markets have sold off quite a bit. They they you know, if nothing else, they they certainly look cheap uh, in the current environment. But what we would really want to see out of China to become more constructive on the outlook for risk assets there, is some sort of more material stimulus coming from the government. Up until this point, it's been very piecemeal. And frankly, that's led to a little bit of an inability or failure to launch uh, for the Chinese economy. Growth wasn't bad last year. We got some numbers out of China uh, last night, but not necessarily as robust as what we've seen in the past. And so where that leaves us, again, is with a view that if the U.S. can continue to march forward, the rest of the world should, frankly, be along for the ride, albeit they will likely see somewhat softer growth than what we get here in the United States. From an investment perspective, turning more to markets, where does that leave us? We, we still see value in what we've been referring to as the financial conditions trade. That, that's an environment where you can lean in to both equities and duration. Now, importantly, we think the role of duration is going to shift over the course of this year. Right now, we're looking at things like 10-year treasuries. We, we frankly like them for the carry. We think a little bit about the role that, that treasuries will play in a portfolio going forward. And we do think that as growth slows here and investors become more focused on the outlook for growth itself, that duration position may evolve into more of a hedge against the more material deterioration in growth. So, taking bonds for the income today, but owning those high-quality bonds as a hedge against weaker-than-expected growth, as we look ahead over the remainder of 2024 and more so into 2025. When it comes to carry assets, we think investment grade looks relatively rich from a valuation perspective at the current juncture, but continue to see value in things like high yield, parts of the emerging market debt complex as well. And really owning those assets, we're not looking for significant capital appreciation, more so owning them for the carry. And that's particularly the case when we look at U.S. and European high yield. The elephant in the room, though, after a very, very good year for U.S. equities is what lies ahead. You know, A lot of times at the beginning of the year, people talk about their expectation being for mid-single-digit returns. That actually never materializes, right? You end up with very good years, some lackluster years. The average shakes out there, but those years are, are very rare. So let's dive in and talk a little bit about what to expect from equities. I want to start with the U.S. and then move on to the rest of the world much better than expect much better than expected year in 2023. Um, what's your outlook for U.S. equities in 2024, and particularly what's your outlook for corporate profits, which seem to be on the up and up uh, over the course of the past couple of quarters?
1: Uh, yeah, David, absolutely right. I mean, it was a a, a very optimistic November and December uh, post CPI. We saw equities rally, you know, very sharply uh, towards the end of the year. In our view, going from pricing in a soft landing to going to more of a Goldilocks type of environment. Um, but overall, we think in 2024, uh, our forecast is for the S&P to be around the 5,000 to 5,100 level. So that implies about high single digit total returns. I know you said that's sort of where, where the average turns out. But when we break it down in terms of the framework that we use for equities, um, that's, that's how we get there, where we have four different pieces in our equity framework. So we have earnings, we have valuation, uh, we have positioning and sentiment, and then we have technicals. So when we look at the earnings piece, we think earnings are really gonna be the biggest driver of returns uh, in 2024. So what we saw in 2023 was that valuations contributed to the most uh, uh, of the returns. And so in 2024, we think it's gonna be earnings driving returns. And we don't see huge earnings upside, but given our forecast of a soft landing, we do see positive earnings growth in 2024, and that's going to be driven by sales. So our forecast is for 7% EPS growth uh, this year, and that's going to be driven around 5% from sales, a little bit from buybacks, and our expectation uh, is for margins to be flat and happy to to go into that in a little bit more detail. But on the valuation side, as I said, you know, that was really the biggest driver in 2023. But where we are today is the market already looks quite expensive to us, both in absolute terms uh, and relative to interest rates. So we think that valuations from here should be relatively flat. So it's really driven by a handful of stocks that really take that absolute number to the very elevated levels. If we look at the equal weighted index, it's not as expensive as in the aggregate, but overall we think the valuation trade is really behind us. Uh, in terms of positioning and technicals, we think there's a little bit of a risk there in the near term. Uh, positioning was quite stretched coming into the start of the year, um, given that we saw that rally at the end of 2023. We've seen that roll off a little bit in the past couple of weeks to a little bit more neutral levels, but still on the positioning and on the technical side, we think there could be a little bit more consolidation over the next couple of, of weeks. Um, um, but overall, in the in the sort of six to 12 month horizon, we still think equities can from
0: here. So I, I want to double click on something you mentioned, and, and that's the issue of margins. Um, margins have obviously been in focus not only last year, but very much so as we look ahead to 2024. A lot of people are saying, look, top line growth is going to slow partially because inflation's coming down, partially because real activity uh, is decelerating. At the same time, wage growth is still north of 4% uh, here in the United States. It sounds like you're not wildly bullish on margins, but you're constructive. On margins and then you don't necessarily feel like they need to come in all that much. Can you talk a little bit more about your margin view? And, and furthermore, are you seeing any differentiation at the sector level? Anything that jumps out at you as maybe a spot where there's room for margin expansion versus areas where we may see margins continue to contract?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, we've heard a lot that margins still need to come down. I, I hear that argument a lot. But looking at what we saw in, in 2022, the margin contraction we saw Uh, two years ago was actually greater than what we saw during the COVID period. So there was almost 300 basis points of margin contraction already. And this is looking at the core S&P 500 margins, excluding some of the more volatile sectors. So we did see margins come back a little bit in 2023. But now we're basically back to those pre-COVID levels. So there was quite a bit of a roller coaster ride to get back to to where we are today. Um, But again, margins don't look elevated to us relative to where we were in the macro environment prior to what we had during COVID. And so in terms of moving forward, there's two ways in which we looked at margins. First, from a top-down perspective, and then secondly, on sectors and and costs. So when we look from a top-down perspective, if we look um, at our assumptions for soft landing, for GDP growth, for interest rates, for oil and for the dollar, uh, we come out with our forecast of 7% EPS growth, which again, implies flat margins from here. But we took uh, another look at margins uh, in, a, in a different way to get a little bit deeper into uh, the sector level and also the cost structures of these companies. And so even though index level margins are back to pre-COVID levels, when we look at the sector level, um, it's really those high growth AI exposed sectors that margins have expanded relative to pre-COVID, whereas other sectors are actually still below their pre-COVID levels. And so we think those margins for those sectors are actually justified and going into 2024, we think those sectors will continue to deliver that earnings growth and drive returns for the overall market. Now, if we look at the cost structure, um, there is some differentiation where we look at SG&A costs and interest costs are not quite where they were at pre-COVID levels, but then when we look at, say, refinancing costs for companies this year with their debt maturing in 2024, or we look at the impact of wage acceleration, we don't really see those costs being a major headwind to margins. Uh, so a modest headwind, but we also forecast positive, positive sales growth. And in that environment, because companies have operating leverage, positive sales growth re- usually translates into margin expansion. So if we look sort of down the income statement, we see a positive impact on margin from sales, some headwind from SGNA costs and interest costs. And so we end up from a top-down perspective and from a sort of sector cost structure perspective, that margins can stay um, at these levels where they are now. And if we look, say, relative to consensus or some other sell-side strategists, we're actually not that optimistic. So we're seeing margins uh, expansion forecasts from bottom-up consensus from sell-side. And so our forecast are sort of flat to slightly higher margins from here. Uh, we think are very much achievable in 2024.
0: So it sounds like there's a little bit of a tug of war there, where on the one hand, some of the supply side issues in terms of moving raw materials and physical goods around the world, in some sectors that's begun to abate. And I know there are other sectors where it's still a little bit of a headwind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then furthermore, kind of pushing the other way, you have these SG&A costs, you have the interest costs. But all things considered, flat margins aren't necessarily bad, again, with wage growth north. Uh, Of 4%. I want to look outside of the US for a couple of minutes. Um, And, you know, IFA has been a a frustrating and disappointing trade for a lot of investors uh, over the better part of the past, you know, not just this cycle, but the prior cycle as well. we talked a little bit about what, we want, what we'd want to see to get more constructive on Europe in terms of a turning uh, in the good cycle, but when you think about Europe versus Japan, do you have a preference between the two regions? And, and furthermore, you know, I'd love to get a sense of, of why that may be the case.
1: Yes, another question that, we, that we've gotten a lot over the past couple of months, especially, um, you know, given Japan's outperformance in 2023. So um, we hear a lot of optimism on Japan, and we would agree going forward, because, again, when we break down um, sort of the drivers of returns, when we look at fundamentals, valuation, positioning, and technicals, Japan just screen, uh, screens to us as, as much more attractive than Europe. So starting off with the fundamental piece, Uh, Our forecast is for above-trend Japanese GDP growth in 2024, Mm -hmm. which is really in contrast to our forecast for other regions. And so when we have that domestic growth, that should support Japanese companies' earnings, but also there's an upside risk from the reflation trade. And so we'll get results on the wage negotiations uh, over the next couple of months. And so if we do have that reflation story in 2024, um, actually come to pass, that would e- boost earnings even more than what GDP would suggest. So that's on the earnings side. Now, if we look at valuation, I'd say that, you know the valuation trade for the U.S. was over in 2023, but I'd say that's pretty similar to most other equity regions uh, around the world where valuations expanded a lot last year. So wh- if we look at Europe and we look at Japan, uh, valuations are pretty much back to average to slightly above average levels. But from here to see valuation expansion, I think the story in Japan is um, a lot more ripe because of corporate governance. And so what we saw last year is that corporate governance actually boosted companies that responded to the TSE a lot more than the overall market. So if that continues to happen in 2024, there could be that valuation upside for Japanese equities, even though... We saw that expansion in 2023 whereas in Europe we don't really see that upside case for valuations and then finally on positioning so even though sentiment on Japan is quite positive and we've as I said we've heard a lot of optimism yep. on Japan recently we haven't really seen that flow into the actual data on positioning so if we look at institutional investors if we look at retail investors if we look at foreign investors we are not seeing those real flows into Japanese equities, especially relative to previous times of optimism around corporate governance. And so if we do see that real money start to flow through, we think there's a lot of upside there to Japanese equities. And then finally, on the technical side, we've seen Japanese equities uh, break through some key resistance levels over the past couple of weeks. Uh, It's outperformed a lot so far this year. uh, And so we think there is continued upside for Japan relative to Europe, where, as you said, we need to see a real pickup in the manufacturing and goods cycle to see that earnings benefit, especially where valuations, are not at very cheap levels uh, at the moment relative to history.
0: Well, clearly, Japan is going to be in focus. For, for those of you who tuned into the last episode, you'll remember I had a portfolio manager on from our inter- international equity group, and he was painting a little bit more of a bearish case for Japan. And so, continuing that theme of tug-of-war, you know, it sounds like there are things working in favor of Japan, there are some things that may be working against Japan. If nothing else, I think that this is going to be a key area of focus for investors uh, over the course of the next 12 months. And you know, finally, maybe bringing our, our conversation to a close, um, I want to touch on on EM and you know, China has sold off aggressively, as I mentioned at the outset. If nothing else, Chinese equities uh, are currently looking cheap. Um, how are you thinking about EM? What are some of your expectations for this year? And you know, similar to the the case around Europe, what would you want to see to get more constructive on that asset class?
1: Sure. Yeah, I would totally agree on the cheapness of of especially of Chinese equities, and positioning looks extremely light at the moment. But in terms of what would get us excited about Chinese equities in particular, is we're looking for a catalyst at the moment, and we're just not seeing that come through uh, at the moment. So there's three potential uh, drivers of a a catalyst for Chinese equities uh, this year. Uh, First is policy easing. Mm -hmm. And we really haven't seen uh, enough uh, policy easing so far, even to support the 5% growth target for 2024. Uh, and so we really need to see more money flow through into the Chinese economy uh, as a potential catalyst this year. The second would be uh, a stabilization in the property market. So the data the data have continued to be quite weak. Uh, property accounts for 25% of Chinese GDP, and so if we see a stabilization there, that could potentially support uh, a re-rating of Chinese equities. Uh, or the last could be a, a sustainable improvement in earnings, and so that would come from the manufacturing cycle or the goods cycle, which again, we, we've seen some stabilization in the macro data, but we haven't really seen that flow through the earnings data yet. So we'd have to see that sustainable improvement in earnings for us to get a little bit more excited, particularly on Chinese equities. Now. EMX China is starting to look a little bit more interesting to us because some of those secular uh, policy worries that we have for Chinese equities particularly is doesn't fully apply to EMX China. And so if we do have... Uh, again, more sustained earnings improvement in the EMX China region, and we've seen some improvement on the tech cycle. Semiconductor exports have, um, you know, started to improve there. And so if we we see that continue to flow through this year, I think we'd get a little bit more optimistic on EMX China. But, you know, if we compare that to the U.S. and Japan, um, you know, our preference is still very much for U.S. equities, given that fundamental strength and Japanese equities, given some of those more secular drivers. Uh, and so we're still overweight those two regions relative to EM.
0: I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and all I would add on the, on the China front is is not only do we have a lack of sufficient easing, we have policy that continues to crack down on certain parts of the economy. And yeah. that has created an additional headwind. There were some articles flying around this morning that alluded to this, really leading the Chinese equity markets a- and economy to a certain extent, um, to really struggle to reaccelerate to the levels that I think. Uh, a lot of investors are looking for. So, um, Arjun, first of all, let me just thank you. This was fantastic. Um, And thank you all for joining us today on J.P. Morgan's Center for Investment Excellence. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes anywhere you listen to podcasts, on our website, or on our J.P. Morgan Asset Management YouTube channel. Recorded on January 17th, 2024.
1: This content is intended for information only based on assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass. JP Morgan Asset Management is the asset management business of JPMorgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide.